This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, let me set the stage for you for this episode. The curtain is about to go up. The house lights have just gone down. There's a hush over the audience. But there might just be a mercurial woman just off stage who could make or break this performance. I'm sure it'll be okay. The stakes are so high, and yet there is no ominous music. I think we can go ahead without anything going wrong whatsoever. (laughs) I'm sure she'll have a few things to say about that. Listeners, we are going to be talking about two, not one, but two mercurial performances from two powerful from two powerhouse actresses. The first is going to be our review of Kate Blanchett in Todd Field's new movie, Tar. And the great Gina Rollins is the second woman fitting that description. We're going to be talking about her in our watchlist segment with our review of John Cassavetes' 1977 opening night. And no matter what happens with either of these performances, we know, Kevin, that the show must go on on episode 354 of Seeing and Believing. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tarr is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music for the stage and screen. She is one of only 15 EGOTs, meaning those who have won all four major entertainment awards. Thank you for joining us, Maestro. Thank you. How's the writing going? Not so well. I keep hearing something. Schopenhauer measured a man's intelligence against his sensitivity to noise. Do you ever find yourself overwhelmed by emotion? Yes. Yes, it does happen. So we're here on episode 354 of Seeing and Believing, and we definitely, you know, it is spooky season, Sarah. We aren't talking about any horror movies this week, but I don't know, I feel like you know, obsessive, difficult artists are their own variety of scary. So maybe we're still on theme here. I mean, there's nothing more terrifying than a woman with ambition. So I feel like we're definitely on theme at the moment. <laughs> I I mean, I, I don't know if I would go that far, but the two women that we are going to be talking about on this week's episode definitely have ambition to spare. In the watchlist segment, we are going to be talking about Gina Rowland's version of that character with John Cassavetti's 1977 opening night. That was Sarah's pick, and I'm looking forward 
to digging into that one. But here in the first segment, we are going to be turning our attention to Tar. This is the latest film starring Kate Blanchett as a very imposing symphony conductor. Tar is director Todd Field's first movie in 16 years mm-hmm. after 2006's Little Children. But where that film was a fairly straightforward literary adaptation of a Tom Parada novel about family life in the American suburbs, Tar sees Fields directing his own original screenplay about a prickly symphony conductor conductor, her pride, and her obsessions. Blanchette takes the title role as Lydia Tarr, the maestro of the Berlin Philharmonic who's poised to cement her legacy with a supremely accomplished presentation of Mahler's symphonies. Would not holding the people around her to almost impossibly high artistic and professional standards, Lydia seems to enjoy a life with her partner, played by Nina Haas, and her daughter. But there's a fly maybe multiple flies in Lydia's impeccably curated ointment. And before Longfield has her and the audience maybe questioning whether the ghosts of her past are merely figurative or whether there's something more than her own flaws that are working to bring her down. So Sarah, I mean, this is a movie that's really built around this uh, intended to be titanic performance from from Blanchett. Mm-hmm. Very imposing, very much interested in digging into uh, Lydia Tarr's psychology and the various things that are swirling around inside her head and in her, the environment around her. So it seems like it's a good place to start to focus our discussion around her, at least to kick things off. Uh, what did you make of the part that Field has written for Blanchett here, and what do you think of Blanchett's embodiment of it? It's funny. It feel like I feel like it's almost impossible to separate the two, both part and Kate Blanchett, the the person playing the part. Um, I loved this characterization, and and I loved it specifically because she is such a difficult character to hold. Um, I don't want to say slippery because she doesn't feel slippery. Like like you'd mentioned, um, she's very prickly. She's she's very abrasive. She seems to be a very difficult person to work for and to live with um, and to be around. And at the same time, she is a very compelling presence. She is incredibly charismatic. And she has this very clear artistic vision of how she wants to interpret the music that she is conducting and how she wants to communicate that music to other people, both to the symphony orchestra playing for her and then also for the audience who would be listening to that orchestra. And it's such a complicated character. I think that Todd Field does a really good job of not allowing us to nail her down or or narrow her down to just one single trait. It feels as though there are a lot of different things just sort of lurking under the surface. And occasionally you get just this flash of another facet of this woman. Um, And at the same time, like she could also just be very simply described with the words of the, the New Yorker profile that she's given at the very beginning of the movie, where you just get a ton of different superlatives about how great she is and about how accomplished she is and about how varied all of those accomplishments are. And I think what works for me is that all of those things seem to be true. And yet there's always that question of and yet. And 
I found myself wanting to follow this character throughout her exploits, even as they started to take that sour turn. So I, for one, was definitely captivated by Tar, as I probably would have been in real life. (laughs) And Kevin, I'm curious to know if you felt the same way about her. I absolutely did. The the thing that kept the comparison that kept springing to mind to me, you know, while I was watching the film and afterwards was uh, Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull, which is mm. another film that's built around a uh, a very difficult protagonist, um, somebody who, like you said, is, you know, in, in some ways a very simple, grokkable kind of character. You know, Jake LaMotta, at first glance, you think you kind of have him nailed down. You feel like you you understand what sort of person he is. But in Robert De Niro's hands, all sorts of facets are revealed and all sorts of uh, hidden and competing impulses and uh, neuroses are, are seized and kind of revealed to be driving LaMotta at various points and sometimes... They they work at cross purposes. Sometimes they work in harmony, but it all feels like a unified person. And mm. I think that's really similar to what Blanchett is doing here with Lydia Tarr. There's just so she does seem like you know she, she lives, breathes, um, and sleeps music all the time. She she is fantastically intelligent. She's very knowledgeable, and that is obviously the most important thing in her life. To her is being a conductor and being the best conductor she can be and sort of acting as a vessel for the great music that her symphony plays. Um, And yet there's so many little touches that Field gives the character on the page and that Blanchette draws out in her performance that she's, she's so endlessly fascinating and complex uh, I mean, I would have this. This is a two and a half hour movie. I would have happily sat for another hour mm-hmm. and just and just watched Blanchett do things. She's so she's such a magnetic screen presence. Like she brings she brings this this really wry humor to Lydia Tarr that I think is really welcome. It would be so easy to take this character and just really focus in on the abrasiveness mm-hmm. and the intellect. And kind of make those the dominating notes in the in the performance of the character. But Blanchette uh, has, you know, she she makes Lydia funny. Um, she makes Lydia, in some moments, uh, surprisingly fragile. And just all of those things, none of them dominate the others. It's, I, I mean, I feel a little bit like a lazy critic making this analogy, but it's like its own great symphony of character acting. Hmm, hmm. I mean, I don't think it's a lazy thing to say because I, I suspect that that's kind of what Field is going for here. Um, for me, it almost felt as though the movie is in conversation with the rest of the world. And I think that Field kind of lays his cards out on the table fairly early on, which is a move that I, I generally don't tend to truck with in movies. Um, but for this one, it worked for me because um, Field is willing to allow the statements to sort of breathe and take on depth and additional complication as you look back on them within the new light of additional things that Lydia Tarr does throughout the movie. But early on in the film, she has this interview um, 
And she refers to music as being in conversation with the rest of the world. And, and I think that that's what Field is doing here is he's attempting to make a movie about a character who is continually in conversation with the music that she is conducting and composing and then also in conversation with the world around her in a way that attempts to assert herself as this musical genius. And I think that the movie is also attempting to walk that tightrope as well in having conversations with different things that are happening in the world around us at the same time. Um, and maybe we can get into that. But one thing that I think is, is crucial is that Tar says in this interview and in this conversation that the conversation with the rest of the world that these composers are having through the music that they write is not always going to be a polite conversation. And I really love that Field is willing to go there to the not polite parts of society and to just present them as this is what's happening and this is what is going on within Tar's head as she's starting to negotiate some of the the less than savory parts, I think, of the musical world and then of her own personal life. And I think crucially... Field is is open to having a conversation about that with the way that he presents those events. He's not just showing something and telling us how to feel about it. I think that he's allowing those situations to open up and breathe and kind of, I, I guess, sing. <laughs> I'm going to get into musical puns here probably, but um, he allows those things to to potentially sing in harmony with each other in some interesting and surprising ways. Yeah, the I mean, I think one of the triumphs of this movie is that it's not just a character study. Like it it is very interested obviously in Lydia as the central character and does have a lot to say about her and there's a lot of interesting explorations of her psychology that takes place over the course of the film. It is very laser focused on her perspective and that's where a lot of the more psychological horror elements come in where mm -hmm. you're you're kind of in Lydia's head and you're not sure if the things that she's hearing are uh, hallucinations, manifestations of some of her own sublimated guilt about her past or if she's actually hearing <laughs> disturbing things. Mm -hmm. And though that's that's all very interesting and engaging. But the triumph is that Field is also able to weave in um, – Lots of other things about the the world we live in, not just not just sort of the world we live in in a generalized sense, but very specifically like specific things about our cultural moment that by virtue of being a public figure and an artist, Lydia must contend with and does contend with often uh, pretty badly. And mm -hmm. the fact that Field allows her to do that without without outright condemning her um, is, I, I think, a testament to why this feels like such a mature work. It's very secure in letting Lydia be herself and allowing her to be both right and wrong, sometimes in the same moment. Mm -hmm. There's this tour de force scene early in the film where she's teaching this class to a bunch of Juilliard students. Um, and she ends up getting into an extended... Well, I, I I I almost said debate, but it's kind of one sided because she's the the much laureled instructor, and the person she's talking to is just a student. But 
and then over the course of that scene, it's it's you know very long takes and Blanchett's sort of holding court and dominating the space and um, essentially asking this student to justify why he doesn't like Johann Sebastian Bach. Uh, you know, so, somebody who's such a towering music figure. You know, who does he think he is? Essentially, uh, dismissing Bach out of hand, and in that moment. The, the way it's written and performed, you you understand that kind of she has a point that that this student still has very much to learn about art and artists and legacy and all of those questions. And yet the way that she communicates all that is so overbearing and browbeating mm-hmm. that she, you also you don't want to agree with her. And field's ability to have both of those those notes playing at the same time i think uh is what makes the that scene so engaging to watch and i think it's that kind of philosophy extends throughout the picture where you understand lydia and you often think that she's right to be the way that she is but you also think that she's wrong to uh be the way she is in these particular uh instances and moments and i don't know it's just it's so wonderful just sit with the movie and just kind of almost like i i can't stop myself it's like competing counter melodies in your head like they're 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 counterpoints to each other and they're not they're they're part of the same piece but and they're kind of in conversation and in opposition with each other but you can't imagine the entire thing working as well if one of them was dominant over the other mm-hmm. yeah so i think that there's there's not just several long takes for that scene in the class at juilliard it's just one long take that makes use of steady cam um, that circles around the classroom and kind of follows Kate Blanchett as she walks around and as she browbeats the student um, into making her point about how he's saying a lot of things about the character of Bach, but he's not really getting at the level of the artistry and the music. And I, I think at one point she even says that um, why does Mahler's you know behavior in the bedroom have anything to do with the artistry that he um, was capable of producing? And I think she says something to the similar effect um, about Bach as well. But there are a lot of these other long, slow takes that just sort of follow her around the room, especially very early on. Um, that New Yorker interview scene, I think, for the most part, is a single take as well. And so much of those long, slow takes, I think, are really good. I hesitate to say the word representation, but they're a good way to communicate the level of control and power that Lydia has whenever she enters a room and whenever she starts to speak within that room. Like she talks about um, her art and the way that it is her job to translate the intent of the composer whenever she is conducting a piece. And I think it's that level of control, like the idea that you can understand the mind of the composer who has given you this this piece of music that you must then convey to an orchestra and then, of course, also to the audience. And that is a level of, I think, almost arrogance um, that I find personally astounding. And yet at the same time, I am also captivated by her in the same moment. So the movie does a very good job, I think, of both presenting Lydia as being this incredible force and incredible presence in a room and then also recognizing that if there is a person who is that level of gravity within a room um, there may be some additional things that 
you might be inclined to ignore potentially, like the the things that start to come back and, and sort of haunt her from her past um, until eventually those things are going to start to come out. And I think that Lydia is aware of these on some subconscious level. I don't think that she is necessarily trying to present herself in any way other than the way that she is, which is that she is a very powerful um presence. But at the same time, I think that there is still sort of a mask that's there. And the moments where Kate Blanchett is just alone, she's not acting against anybody. She's not even monologuing, which she does do quite a lot in this film and to very good effect. But the moments where she's alone and it's just her and her thoughts and those flashes of the past start to come back a little bit. Um, I think were the moments that really, really worked for me most effectively because it wasn't just a showy piece of camera work or it wasn't a, a very like long and involved monologue that's kind of laying out the themes of the movie. It was also just the way that Kate Blanchett carries herself and the way that she holds her face. So there's a moment um, about midway through this film, I think, where she's running in the woods in the rain and she hears the sound of a woman screaming. And it's the exact same tone and pitch of a sound that she was hearing in her apartment as she was composing uh, the scene before. And it kind of makes you question reality a little bit. Like, is she thinking about that piece of music? Is she thinking about something else that's come back from her past? Um, And the way that Blanchette plays out that scene where first there's control and then all of a sudden there isn't and she sort of starts to break into this panicked run and then she can feel herself panicking and she isn't able to hold herself back. I just I think that that's just a tremendous piece of work where the control is important and you can see that level of power and control throughout the movie and and it's pretty palpable even when she is being perfectly controlled. But the moments when that mask starts to slip, I think, were what really drew me in because I didn't really know what was going to happen next, either from Blanchett or from the script. Either way, like I was I was along for the ride because I wanted to see what this character was going to do. Well, it's this wonderful confluence of of character psychology and like subject matter the in that opening interview uh with uh adam gopnik Mm -hmm. uh of the new yorker uh, lydia says something very interesting when when she's talking about music she she essentially says that music is uh more or less time and that's essentially what the the job of the conductor is the conductor's job is to keep time but the conductor's job isn't just merely to you know, act as a metronome and just sort of like keep the beat. The The conductor has the power to sort of shape time, elongate moments, um, bring the audience into a space where the arbiter of how long a piece takes to play is the conductor and nobody else. She says, time, time begins with me, hmm. which is when you really think about it, is a fantastically egomaniacal kind of thing for a person to say. And it it really explains these moments when we start to see her world fraying at the edges a little bit. You begin to understand there's actually a, a great fear underlying that for her is that she does want to control. She wants to be the person who shapes the world around her, who shapes time around her, who always has things going according to her plan. And when she's not at the podium, obviously, 
she doesn't have that kind of control. And that's when uh, her uglier side comes out. That's when her fearful side comes out. And that's that's kind of where you, you sense a little bit of existential dread creeping around the edges, where you know you, you essentially have this portrait of a of a woman who has learned to become sort of the master of her own universe mm. and has maybe been obliged to do that because she's a a woman in a male dominated field and she's also a lesbian and so there's also there's you can imagine the sorts of social forces that are sort of have been she's had to fight against and swim against her entire life and that over time has sort of calcified her into this person who only who can't stand a world in which she doesn't kind of have that level of control over time and space. Mm-hmm. And so the the moments where that her lack of control begins to kind of like seep in through the cracks and assert itself a little bit more uh is they're they're horrifying but they're horrifying because we've been so brought into that perspective that we that we understand both this is uniquely terrifying for her this loss of control mm-hmm. and it's also a great uh illustration of you know when a person has created a world where they're the ultimate authority there is no higher power other than the individual then things start to get really scary when the individual starts to go off the rails yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that I like about this is when you start to delve into that psychology, I'm not sure that there's I'm not sure that it's possible to understand exactly where the beginning of control ends and the egomaniacal behavior sort of begins. Um I think that Field does a does a very good job of not trying to explain the psychology of Tar or try to explain too much about how she got into this position. But I think that you can see sort of the tangle of threads that might have led this character up until this particular point. And I think it's I I think it's pretty crucial that she is a woman and that she is a lesbian, because I think that a movie where Tar maybe happens to be played by a straight man, I think that a movie with that sort of story would probably play out a little bit more didactically and a little bit more straightforwardly in a way that just would not have been one probably a less interesting story because there are so many other movies about overbearing and domineering and and brilliant men already like you already mentioned raging bull for example but i think it also um lends a really interesting wrinkle to the conversation that we're having today about who gets to have the final say in any given conflict and then also um who gets to even be able to have any sort of say at all. And and I think that, um, I don't know, like, I, I feel like it's reductive to reduce Tar down to her gender and her orientation. But I also think that those are very crucial and interesting parts of who she is. And I can't help but wonder, um, and I don't know if the movie is trying to answer this question for us, but I don't actually know, like, is Tar actually a good artist or does she think that she is a good artist? And has she been afforded this position because she has managed to get herself into the right positions in order to be able to climb her way up? I'm genuinely not sure. And I feel really deeply conflicted about that because, you know, it, it's probably not fair of me to ask, like, did she actually earn her position because she's a woman? Um, but at the same time, it, it's something that's sort of been raised in my mind as 
is she actually as good as she thinks she is? Or did she make herself as good as she believes she is? And did she do some pretty heinous things to get into that point in the first place? It feels very complex to me. Mm-hmm. The there it's been it's hinted at at a couple of points in dialogue that there's a lot of politics at play in Lydia's world and that she has kind of learned how to leverage those, you know, those interpersonal politics, those professional politics mm-hmm. for her own ends. In fact, the in an exchange with uh her wife, uh the her wife points out that when she first came to the Berlin Philharmonic uh, she received they, they kind of collaborated in order sort of to get her to rise up to the privileged position that she holds in the present in the movie's present mm-hmm. and i i think that's again that's that's field kind of really um inviting the audience to 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 consider the very nature of power and that's i think where uh lydia's gender and, and sexual orientation really become important uh, thematically is is that um, this is a film that's very interested in you know what constitutes power and you know what various forms can it take and what are the effects of power on individuals and obviously we see that for Lydia it has enabled her to do many you know many artistically great things but at great personal cost to the people around her and specifically under her. And I th- I think that that's, it, it's Field's way of sort of um, kind of tugging at a, at a thread that's been uh, part of the cultural conversation for a while now is sort of, you know, what, what does, what constitutes privilege mm-hmm. and who has more privilege, who has less and how germane is that question uh, in a situation where one party is pretty clearly uh, doing something wrong or or unhelpful, and I he, again, he, I don't think he gives us any easy answers, and I think that that's why this is a film that is is one that you want to come back to again and again because he doesn't give us easy answers, but the the questions are very are very clear, and it kind of demands a bit of a, a response from us. I, I feel like. I, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. There's a little bit of the Miltonic Satan mm-hmm. in in Tar's characterization here. I don't mean that in I, I mean that in the literary sense, not in sort of like she is literally satanic. But <laughs> there's the sense that she would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. If if she makes the world around her into a terrible place, it doesn't matter as long as she gets to be the one up at the podium controlling the time. Mm-hmm. And if she can't do that, then she wants none of it. And I think the the place where she ends up by the end of the film is kind of a, an illustration of that maxim that that Milton's Lucifer says is that you know she maybe she can't have the perfect podium, but she must have the podium. Mm-hmm. The podium is the thing that she must have, and it, that's there. There's something kind of grandly tragic it is very miltonic that Mm -hmm. that that there's a refusal to compromise there and that is in its own way admirable but it's also deeply disturbing as well Mm -hmm. yeah especially because um like you'd said she's she's trying to sort of fold and and mold that that podium into something that 
she and she alone can control in a way that she and she alone can control. And I keep coming back to that idea um, from that conversation with the Juilliard students at, at the beginning of the movie where she talks about that idea of translation of intent. Um which is something that uh, as, as a former linguistic student, I sort of chafe at a little bit because once something is out into the world, it's not just about the intent of the speaker um, as much as the speaker would like to be able to control the output and, and the meanings of their words. It's also conversation is a two way street. It's not just what did the original speaker mean, but what did the audience take away from that meaning and whatever additional preconceptions and notions that the audience may carry with them are going to color what the speaker says, regardless of intent. And so I think that the real tragedy of Tar is that she is such a singular force because she thinks that she has to be the only one who is capable of that level of of control. And you just cannot control what your audience says or does or thinks. Once the words are out there, they're out there and you can't take them back again and, and you can't control them again. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm on board with that Miltonic read um, and I'm on board with it, especially just given the light in light of what Tar says earlier in the film that just sort of in, informs those additional character traits. And she also, you get the sense that she wants to, part of part of the control for her is she needs to almost dehumanize mm-hmm. the people who she sees as trying to bring her down. The, the favored insult that she keeps bringing back, that she breaks out over and over from the, the Juilliard student to, I, I think, uh, an incompetent underling. Even, I think, at one point she calls her wife this. She call, she uses the insult robot. Mm-hmm. She, she, do, she, you know, she doesn't break out the profanity. She doesn't, you know, attack them personally. She simply calls them a robot, implying that they aren't even, she doesn't even really see them as people. They are cogs in her machine. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a, it's such a telling detail on, on Field's part to give her that character trait. And I think Blanchette really invests on the the venom that she's able to inject into into that noun uh is is something to see. And I, I think is just again, it's 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 wonderful and disturbing in equal measure. I, I think it's also very telling that we've had this entire conversation about Tar the character within Tar the movie, and we haven't really even touched on any of the other performances or anything else about the film. It's in, it's not because oh, those are bad, because they are very good. It's just that Kate Blanchett is just such a, um, I don't know, just a gravity well of <laughs> charisma and of force and of power. Um, so I'll be curious to know um, if there was anything that stood out to you, because um, for me, it was Naomi Merlant um, of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, it was very good to see her again in a movie. And I really appreciated the the level of subtlety that I think she brought to a very sticky and, and difficult role. But I'm curious to know what you think as well. I, I, I mean, I like Naomi Merlant quite a bit as well. I was also uh, really happy to to see her return. Uh, this is the first film I've seen her in since Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I'm sure she's uh, worked steadily since then, but I, I think she does a great job. But the 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 cast member that really stood out to me besides Blanchett, of course, was Nina Haas as as her mm-hmm. wife, because Haas 
uh, in some ways is is playing uh, a much playing much more subtly than Blanchett is. Like you know, Blanchett you know just has she just has the opportunity to really let loose. There are all she gets so many monologues. The camera is always on her. She's so like you like uh, she creates this this uh, event horizon of charisma around herself <laughs> that it's a very easy performance in some ways to make interesting uh nina haas is a very quiet the 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 part of the of the wife i should say is is a very quiet one haas does so much work with her eyes just Mm. when uh blanchette kind of develops this infatuation with a brand new cello player in the in the symphony you can tell just from the haas's expression uh, the the way that she uses her eyes, the way that that Field kind of inserts these shots of her, that Haas isn't fooled for a second. Her character knows exactly what's going on, and she isn't letting Lydia off the hook in her mind. But she's not saying anything for now. She's sort of like biding her time, knowing that there will be a time where they'll have to have it out. But until then, she just watches and understands. And I think Haas plays those those moments to perfection, even though she's not saying anything, even though she's basically not doing anything. She's basically sitting in the concert chair, not speaking while her conductor wife holds court. Mm -hmm. And I I think that in its own way is an extremely impressive performance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of really good glances in this movie, I think, around and at Tar as well. Um, I also kind of wanted to call out um, Sophie Kaur, who plays Olga, the the new cellist um, in the Berlin Symphony Orchestra, because what she's doing is completely unlike everything else in the cast around her, where everybody else is looking at Tar or looking around Tar or trying to understand Tar or being infuriated by her. I think that Olga is kind of this this level of innocence personified. And I think that that is also very difficult to get right without getting kind of treacly. And this performance, like Sophie Carr's performance, works so well at getting that level of youth and exuberance and um, maybe a little bit of naivete as well in a way that doesn't feel forced. Um, so I also just wanted to make mention of that one, too, because that left a mark on me as well. It's interesting that, that you read you read her character as as naive or innocent, because I do think She's not conniving in the way that Lydia is, but I didn't get a read on her that that she was innocent so much as as free from from what what am I trying to say? Free from the prejudice, I guess. Like she's she's not all that she she's not overawed by Lydia mm. in the way that so many other characters are. She's not um, so desperate to prove herself as a young cellist that she's nervous during auditions. She she knows that she's good and she knows that she kind of just needs what she needs. There's a scene where she goes out to lunch with Lydia and she just sort of like is eating at a very steady clip and it's not important to her how that makes her look. She's just hungry and she wants to eat. So there, I don't know if it's, if it's innocence so much as just complete unconcern mm. with with petty things that I, I found to be interesting about her character. That might be a better way of putting it. I think I was thinking of innocence of the politics of the symphony, and I could also see that in- innocence potentially being corrupted if she were to spend more time under Lydia Tarr's corrosive character, if that makes sense. <laughs> 
sort of a, a prelapsarian state where uh, Lydia's <laughs> Miltonic Satan hasn't quite corrupted her yet, maybe. Exactly. If, if we want to get highfalutin about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're allowed. It's a movie about symphony orchestras and conductors. So highfalutin is, is probably yeah. the right tone to strike here. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a string orchestra, so maybe there aren't any flutes in there, but if there are any, there are some high ones. I already, I regretted that sentence from the moment I began it, but I guess I had to see it through to the bitter end. I'm here for it. Listeners, that is our review of Todd Field's new Tar. Obviously, we loved this film and would highly recommend it. It's currently in wide release now. So if you've had a chance to see it and have any thoughts about its characterization of Lydia Tar or what it has to say about music or power or any of these things, there's a lot to talk about and we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or send us a tweet over on the Twitter at cbelievepod, that's cbelieve. P-O-D. We're going to share some of your own thoughts from the past week on Twitter here in a second, and then we're on to John Cassavetti's opening night. Don't go anywhere. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. Sarah, we just spent, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes. It was a a long first segment, and we spent a lot of it talking about the greatness that is Kate Blanchett. Mm -hmm. So I think that the question that you posed on Twitter, uh, it seems especially apt for this week, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, I simply wanted to know who's your favorite actress, um, since, seeing as how we were going to be talking about Kate Blanchett's powerhouse uh, turn in Tar. Um, and then we'll also be discussing another powerhouse performance in opening night. And we heard back from a few listeners who had some really good picks. So Ron Sturry um, is on our wavelength. Um, he's singing in harmony with us. He said, hard to answer, but consideration <laughs> must be given to Kate Blanchett. Maybe swayed by the recent Rolling Stone article, but how can you ignore performances in Carol, Mrs. America, I know TV, but great, Thor Ragnarok, Lord of the Rings, The Aviator, and Elizabeth, among many others. And he also says that he cannot wait to see Kate Blanchett in Tar. Yeah, you know, Blanchett's one of those actresses that I feel like I, I, I didn't fully appreciate how great she was at first, but in recent years, she's really just been blowing me away with just how much presence she has. Mm-hmm. She feels like... Uh, like one of those those old school golden age actresses where you know she's on screen and it doesn't matter what's coming out of her mouth you are just completely keyed into it and uh, can't look away. I think she's got that kind of screen presence herself. I, I think back to uh, Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley mm-hmm. from you know recent times that just when her psychologist shows up on screen, it's like that movie just gets a shot in the arm. It's just, she's electrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, I think you're also on the same wavelength as Christy Olsen, who went back to Golden Age Hollywood and said, 
um, that she would have to say Ginger Rogers is her pick for her favorite actress, um, specifically because of her acting style, which Christy says feels very modern, even when those around her have a very specific old Hollywood style. Um, And she says that Ginger somehow feels ahead of her time. And she gives just such smashing performances, not to mention being a triple threat status as well. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great pick as well. Thanks for writing in, Christy. Mm-hmm. We also heard from Lindsay Dunn, who said that she really respects Rebecca Hall, great actress, and all that she is doing for genre films. But currently, all she's thinking about is Lashana Lynch, especially after her work in The Woman King. And we also heard from another Twitter user, uh, Aaron E4L, who also said that Lashana Lynch is killing it. Also, Thusom Bedu from The Woman King as well. And... Aaron E4L followed up that statement to say that they'll watch anything and everything that both of those actresses are in, including The Woman King, which they've seen five times at this point, which to me feels like a pretty good reason to be watching that movie over and over again. Lashana Lynch, I thought, was a terrific presence in that movie. Yeah, I agree. Lashana Lynch, it's been nice to see Lashana Lynch, you know, get get more recognition. And she's another actress that kind of has quite a lot of screen presence herself. So I'm curious to know, uh, since you were the one who posed the question, whether you had any specific actresses of your own in mind. Yeah, um, I am who I am. And so my favorite actress is probably going to have to be Sigourney Weaver. Um Partly because I I love the Alien movies. It, it is who I am. And at this point, I'm probably a self-parody. But it's not just because of her performances in the Alien movies, although they are very good. I really do think that she has comedic range. Um, it's probably film buff um, heresy to say that I don't like Ghostbusters. But I do like Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters, and I think that she's hilarious in that movie, and I think that she kind of elevates an otherwise middling film. Oh, that's that's a good pick. And for for whatever it's worth, I also am kind of like, eh, Ghostbusters is fine. You know, I'm not. I'm, I don't know that it's necessarily heresy to uh, stake out that spot on the uh, Ghostbusters opinion <laughs> spectrum, but wholeheartedly in agreement with you on on Sigourney Weaver. She. It's just hard to imagine anyone else in that role in Alien, mm-hmm. in the Aliens franchise. So I'm I'm glad to see her getting some love from, from your side of the recording studio. Mm-hmm. Curious to know uh, if there are any actresses that you had in mind when I raised this question as well. <laughs> I mean, I, I almost was wondering if you were even going to ask me that because I feel like it's just kind of obvious <laughs> for me, especially for anyone who's been listening in, in recent months. Uh, I, I love Barbara Stanwyck. Mm-hmm. I think she's great. I think... You know, there, there's there's a lot of reasons to to like her that are similar to why you might like lots of Golden Age actresses, similar to what Christy Olsen had to say about Ginger Rogers. Just Stanwyck does kind of just radiate this, this screen presence, this charisma. Um, she also kind of, it does feel like watching her today, she feels very modern in, in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And she, I don't know, I think she's just, she's got a humor and a presence to her that I find utterly magnetic. So there's that. I also really like Setsuko Hara, uh, who Mm. is the leading lady favored most by Yasujiro Ozu. Um, Different energy than Barbara Stanwyck, maybe, but she just is is radiant. Like every movie she's in, she just is completely and utterly compelling and luminous Mm. like silver screen like she's 
just born to be on the silver screen. She just shines. And uh, I have not yet seen a movie with her in it that has just not made me fall a little bit in love with her while the movie's been going on. She's that good. Both of them are just so wonderful. I'm really glad that you introduced me to the Lady Eve and to Barbara Stanwyck by extension. Um, And then, yeah, Satsukahara is also a a terrific pick. Um, I really love her in everything that I've seen her in as well. Yeah, well, thanks, listeners, for uh, writing in and uh, giving us an excuse to talk about our favorite actresses. We love to hear from you. And if you didn't get a chance to chime in about your favorite actress for you know this week's episode, that doesn't mean it's our mailbox is closed. Please feel free to keep those picks coming. We love to hear them. And now it's time for the watch list segment. Listeners know that the watch list is the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't had a chance to see yet. We both watch it and then unpack it live here on the air. So this week, Sarah, you your pick was John Cassavetti's 1977 film, Opening Night, mm-hmm. uh, which I have not seen. In fact, it's my very first Cassavetti's film. Mm-hmm. Uh, this film follows actress Myrtle Gordon, played here by the great Gina Rollins, as a functioning alcoholic actress who is a few days from the opening night of her latest play about a woman distraught over her age. One night, a car kills one of Myrtle's fans who is chasing her limousine in an attempt to get the star's attention. Myrtle internalizes that accident and engages in some self-reflection about her art and her age. But as opening night inches closer and closer, she struggles to find answers for the questions that are troubling her. So, uh, Sarah, you mentioned when you uh, announced the watchlist pick last week that uh, Cassavetes is, is a director who you find it easier to admire than to love Mm -hmm. so i'm really interested to get your thought process on why you picked opening night and kind of in light of comparing it to tar or at least pairing it with tar you know what does it tell you how does it speak to you about number one the titanic central performance of gina rollins and also what does it have to say about the nature of performance in general Mm. being about a play and an actress together yeah it's tricky so my relationship with cassavetes is a bit of a fraught one because i watched a bunch of his movies back to back to back during a particularly rough couple of months and so i don't like how he gets into your head Um, But at the same time, one of the things that I admire about him very much is that he asks you to watch a bunch of very unlikable characters or characters with very unlikable traits who you may or may not still be rooting for. And he tells you to find yourself in a piece of them. And I think the thing about Opening Night in particular is that Myrtle, played by Gina Rollins, is being asked to do the exact same thing with a character that she is supposed to be playing in this play called The Second Woman, where she is the second woman and she is trying to her her character on the stage is trying to wrestle with the idea of aging. And Myrtle doesn't like to consider the fact that she is aging either. So she she sees too much of herself in her character and she also sees nothing to love or nothing that she feels that she can love in that character. And it threatens to derail the entire production. Um, and Cassavetes does a really remarkable job of getting you inside of Myrtle's head and then also getting you a really good understanding of what's going on in all of the heads around everybody else who are around Myrtle. So you can really feel that sense of tiredness and irritation and the occasional flashes of joy. 
And I think that it's it's just it's a lovely layered performance because it's both Gina Rowland's trying desperately as an actress herself to to get into the head of Myrtle and then also Myrtle trying to get into the head of Virginia, the character that she's playing on stage and a lot of back and forth conversation between those characters. And you can also tell at the same time that those characters and the people playing them have all had very long and involved conversations with Cassavetes that informed their own development. He was a very, very um, collaborative sort of filmmaker who would allow his actors to help him rewrite his scripts. Um And I think that this kind of distills that process in a way that makes me feel a little bit less on edge, even though I worry about Myrtle very deeply. And I think it also makes me sympathize with her in a way that I I find difficult to do with some of the other characters in other Cassavetes movies as well. So Gina Rollins also plays um, the titular role in uh, A Woman Under the Influence, which is a movie that I personally found to be excruciating. And this weirdly, like, it's a stressful movie, but Opening Night is probably the least stressful Cassavetes I've ever encountered. And so that might also be partly why I've glommed onto it. So... Kevin, I'm curious to know, this was your first Cassavetes. How did you find it? So I was surprised by this film because I I knew Cassavetes by reputation as sort of an actor's director, Mm -hmm. right? Like that that, uh, nugget you mentioned about how he was fond of being very collaborative with with his films and and his his actors the way that he often used many of the same actors between films mm-hmm. he was an actor himself uh even the the writing style is very um very theatrical it feels very much like a play where the dialogue is um very literary almost self-consciously so there just seems to be a lot of emphasis at least by reputation on Cassavetes as somebody who's who's very interested in creating characters on screen and um and and really delving deep into psychology and motivation and the sorts of things that you know uh really talented actors like Rollins uh and pretty much all of his cast members in this film can can really just sink their teeth into and get a lot out of so that and th- and those things I will say they're they're all present in this film but I think what's what was surprising to me about it was how uh how rich it was about other things. Um, Hmm. So there's a lot of existential dread in this film too. So that's kind of maybe the main, the main link between it and Tar is that, you know, Myrtle obviously is, you know, she's playing an, uh, playing a role uh, in which the, the character is, you know, very worried about aging and and about lost youth and vitality. And, you know, that's an obviously a, a very, common sort of sentiment there there's nothing all that unusual about it but and i was kind of expecting cassavetes to be more interested in in the psychology of that and um unfolding the character to us but what i wasn't expecting this film to be was so much about about the fear of death itself and how old age and our dread of it isn't just about you know losing beauty or vitality it's about the fact that you're inching closer and closer to the grave <laughs> and mm. that that opening sequence where we see this young fan unceremoniously just plowed into by a car and you know as myrtle and and her her cast friends kind of leave her for dead just because there's nothing they can do for her mm-hmm. um that i i wasn't expecting cassavetes to really just 
leap headlong into into kind of more existential questions like that. And I think the place where the play ends up where, you know, the the what was once a play that was very much a serious minded exploration of the fear of aging turns into sort of this this farce, mm-hmm. <laughs> this this comedy where the way that these characters find around their dread of death is to laugh at it and sort of thumb their nose in, in death's face. I found that to be very interesting and not at all what I was expecting. So I, I was pleasant. I was I was surprised, mostly pleasantly. I, I don't know that, that that final performance fully worked for me, and we can maybe talk about that for a little bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, on balance, I, I liked this film, and I was it was nice to find that my preconceptions about Cassavetti's were were upended at many many different turns. That's so good to hear. Um and I I think for me this is this is the movie that for me feels like it plays a little bit like the least into the preconceptions that I had had about Cassavetti. So I, I'll be curious to know what you think about other Cassavetti's movies in in the future potentially. But for me I feel like a lot of that that joy and a lot of that defiance in the face of death is something that comes from Within the script, the characters on the stage sort of rebelling against what has been written for them and saying, um, you don't have control over us. We're the ones on the stage and therefore we are the ones who control the audience and we're the ones who control our own actions. And I think a lot of the joy in this movie, and I'm not entirely sure if I'm on its wavelength either, but a lot of the joy in this movie kind of comes from these actors discovering that level of power. And then being willing to go and potentially play some basically improv games with each other. Um, That's something that, depending on my mood and and when I'm watching this movie, I'm more or less on board with. So um, you sounded like you had a couple of reservations about it, and I'm curious to know what those are. I I mean, the primary reservation, I think, just has to do with that that final that or not that final performance the it's the final performance in the movie but it's the actual opening night mm-hmm. of the title it's the 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 last uh 15 20 minutes of the film is the very first performance for a, a full paying audience uh that we've seen in the film up to that point and we're already a little bit on edge about it because rehearsals haven't been going well and we we know uh, from the backstage chaos that Myrtle is not there. She's she's out getting drunk mm-hmm. while the other actors are sort of pacing and wondering, you know, is this show going to be canceled? What's going to happen? And then when Mor- Myrtle does show up just completely, you know, smashed, they, they have to figure <laughs> out, okay, how is the show going to go on? And I think that as that sequence goes on and we kind of culminate with this final uh, comedic performance between Myrtle and uh, her co-star Maurice, played here by Cassavetes, um, I, I think the the comedy in that in that part of the scene just I don't know that it fully works for me. I I know that I appreciate thematically what it does in the context of the film. Mm-hmm. I don't think within the reality of the film it really works for me. I don't I don't know that it's it seems like it's framed as a successful performance mm-hmm. and as one that the audience is enjoying very much. But for the life of me, I don't think that that is actually what an act, what an I don't think that's believable. Mm-hmm. And I I hate criticizing a film because 
it isn't believable because I, I don't know that that's a very interesting way to look at a movie is how believable it is. Mm-hmm. But I think in the context of this film, which is so grounded about the the nuts and bolts of theatrical production, I think it is maybe a little bit more important for it to feel true to what live performance is actually like. Mm-hmm. And that moment feels maybe like less successful than the other parts of the film that are are looking at that dimension of of the actress's life. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's it actually kind of comes back to the camera angles and the and the technical pieces in this movie. So, whenever the cast is in rehearsals, the camera is kind of back in the theater seats, looking up at the stage, watching these actors sort of go through their lines and either be able to go through like a version that might potentially make it to opening night or um, in a couple of very memorable cases, just not be able to go through with it at all. There's a very long extended drawn out sequence where um, Maurice is supposed to slap Myrtle on the face and Myrtle is not having any of it. And frankly, like I totally understand where she's coming from. Um, But the camera angle is always from the position of what the potential audience is going to be, even though those seats, for the most part, are are empty. They are in some um, previews in New Haven, but they haven't made it to the big time. They're not on Broadway yet. And once the show gets to Broadway, once it gets to that opening night and Myrtle is on the stage and she is incredibly drunk and she is just trying desperately to get through the performance the camera shifts focus from being out amongst the imaginary audience and out backstage watching the very real audience watching her and I think it gets at what it's like to be within her head and part of me wonders if some of that disconnect with the more improv we're going to take control of this play now moments is that the camera makes that return back to where the hypothetical audience is. And you don't really feel that same connection that the performance or you don't really feel that same connection that the performers feel with the audience because you can't actually see the audience reacting. You're kind of thrown back into the position of the audience and you're kind of supposed to imagine what the audience is, is supposed to be reacting to or how how they might potentially be reacting to. And I agree, there is a little bit of that disconnect there. For me, it's probably because I'm not very much of an improv person personally, but the, I don't know, that that might be a quibble. I, I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the way that Cassavetes does use the camera to make us always aware of the audience. Mm-hmm. The the fact that, you know, Myrtle is a woman who uh, has made it her profession to to be looked at, um, who's made it her part of her entire life is basically um, creating people on stage that for, for the audience's entertainment. And whatever happens to that person on stage, you know, whether they're getting slapped or ridiculed or brutalized or just taken apart emotionally, it's always in service of the people out there in the audience who have paid good money for a ticket so they can watch that happen. And I I think the, the parts of... The film that that I think were maybe most effective were the parts where we do kind of where Cassavetes' camera emphasizes the people who are watching Myrtle, whether they're paying paying audience members or fellow cast members or producers or fans. You always kind of get this this expression on the face as they watch Myrtle 
uh, rehearse or act mm. or just be herself. It's kind of this rapt, almost hungry expression. Maybe hungry is not the right word, but they're they they they're drawn to her. They want to see her do her thing. And in the context of this play, that means that they want to see her play a sad woman who is a little bit ridiculous, who is afraid of being a woman of a certain age. And uh, essentially, they they want to see her be humiliated over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And so that does, I think, make the, the final sequence, even if I don't know that it's fully believable, it makes it thematically satisfying because... In that moment, we we see Merle kind of hit a hit rock bottom. She's you know she comes to the stage door drunk and kind of is forced to go through with the performance anyway. Mm-hmm. But as the play goes on, she you know she begins to sober up a little bit, and by the time we get to that final scene where she and Maurice take the reins, abandon the script that's been written for them, and engage in some jolly old thumbing of the nose in the face of the specter of mortality. It's it's essentially Myrtle taking back control from the the writers and the audience members and the directors who only want one thing from her, and she can kind of reclaim a little space for herself where you know she's not going to be uh, humiliated or anxious in the face of death. She's going to do something else, and I appreciated that about the film, and I thought that was a an an engaging note for it to end on. I think it's crucial too that this is the first time in the entire movie where she's also cooperating with the cast and the rest of the cast is cooperating with her as well. Um, It's not just the games that she's playing with Cassavetti's Maurice uh, on the stage. It's the way that the cast literally holds her up as she's walking through the early parts of the play where she, she literally cannot stand up by herself either. And I think that she's been sort of pitted against them um, in some interesting ways, by the director of the stage play, played um, his the director's name is Manny Victor. He's played by Ben Gazzara, who's a frequent Cassavetti's collaborator. And there's a level of antagonism that it feels like is sort of being stoked by the director, potentially to try to inform Virginia, the character that Myrtle is is playing on stage. And I love that that thumbing of the nose isn't just in the form of just abandoning the script completely, but it also feels like it's the way that the rest of the cast suddenly rallies around her. And that, to me, felt believable because as difficult as Myrtle is as a person and as difficult a character as Virginia is, I think that there is a level of if not friendliness, but maybe camaraderie that's being forged amongst the rest of this cast behind the scenes. And I wonder if that's kind of that additional solidarity, if that's that additional solidarity in the face of the fear of death. Like maybe most of these other cast members don't feel that right at that moment because a lot of them are much younger than Myrtle is, but they know that it's coming or at least they can see that fear on her face. And so they're going to support her too. And it almost feels like an exorcism to the, at the very end there. Hmm. That's, that's interesting. The exorcism angle. I hadn't considered that, but I like that reading. I, I, I kind of wish that we had been able to, pair this film with our review of Andrew Dominic's Blonde. Mm. We did you know, review that film for uh, our bonus episode for October. Um, and I think 
it would have been really instructive to have these two side by side and watch one kind of almost right after the other and see the different ways in which, I don't know, see the contrast in how um, that solidarity that you mentioned is portrayed or not portrayed as the case may be in blonde, with Blonde uh, in, in the film. Like in, in Blonde, it does seem like it's interested in performance and uh, the sacrifices that an actress makes for her art, but it's also, it's, it's a very bleak film and it's a very isolating mm-hmm. film. There's nobody who Marilyn Monroe in that picture really engages with as a, as an artistic peer. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of characters in that film that are interested in, um, in engaging with her artistically. And that, I think that was something that we, you know, mentioned in our review that was faintly dissatisfying was that Marilyn the icon was present, but Marilyn the artist wasn't. And I think in opening night, we do get to see uh, an actress who is also going through a very difficult time, who is concerned with uh, uh, her own fading, uh, potentially screen presence, or in this case, stage presence, um, who's uh, even dealing with the, the looming... Uh, specter of her own mortality and yet the path that opening night takes to resolve that tension and, and explore um the havoc that it can wreak on her on her personal life um i found to be i don't know it, it's a, it's an interesting counterpoint i would have liked to have really had the chance to dig into them more uh in more depth yeah i i completely agree with you i think it would have been a, a fascinating double feature crucially to i think that both Marilyn Monroe in Blonde and Myrtle Gordon in Opening Night are also two women who are haunted by something. Um, mm-hmm. In Myrtle's case, literally haunted by a ghost. Maybe literally haunted by a ghost. Maybe she's made up this this character as a figment of her, her imagination. She kind of says both things at once out of both sides of her mouth. I think she's haunted. I, I genuinely think that this is a ghost story. And I think that that also gets at that idea that we were talking about when we were discussing tar, which is that um, once an idea is out there in the world, you can't really control it ever again. Um, It's kind of open to interpretation from the audience and from the other people who come into contact with it. And sometimes that can come back in some really distinctly unsettling ways. So Myrtle is haunted by the ghost of Nancy, the fan of hers who was hit by the car after that performance in New Haven. And um, Nancy kind of takes on almost a dual life as a ghost because she is both the fact that she is a young fan who, who has been killed kind of in pursuit of Myrtle. But she's also... Myrtle's fear of death and then she's also Myrtle's I guess hope for youth kind of all rolled into one and and it's an interesting performance I don't know how much I love it but it is one that I feel kind of captivated by and and maybe it's because Cassavetes is engaging in a lot of very intense like shuffling close-ups whenever she appears on the screen I kind of wish that I had the ability to get a good look at her a little bit more and be able to understand her presence in the room other than just Myrtle's reactions to her. But I'm curious to know what you think about the movie's use of Nancy as well. I, you know, so that's, I I think Nancy's presence is, is partly why, you know, I'm, I'm sad that we didn't get to pair opening, opening night with blonde, 
but I'm not that sad because it also makes a really great double feature with Tar, mm. which is a, another story about a, a woman who um, has, has, you know, is very flawed and is haunted by ghosts, whether literal or metaphorical. You know, that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. But I think Nancy is interesting because she's an embodiment of Myrtle's um, Myrtle's great talent, right? Like the whole reason that Nancy, you know, meets her fate and the whole reason that Myrtle can't stop thinking about her is because she was drawn to Myrtle's ability. She, she was, you know, a huge fan of Myrtle's acting ability and just um, kind of built an entire identity around her. So she's, she embodies Myrtle's greatness, but also in the way that Myrtle appropriates her death for her own selfish artistic ends. Mm-hmm. I think those moments where she talks about that are Myrtle at her most unlikable, where this, uh, where Nancy becomes not so much a, a person who died um, or even really a person at all. She's, she becomes a way for Myrtle to sort of work through her own stuff. Mm-hmm. And in, in I, th- I think in that way, a lot of what, the a lot of the difficulties that Myrtle goes through over the course of the film, I feel like she almost brings on herself. The punishments that she receives are the natural consequences of taking a living, a living, breathing human who died because they loved you so much, <laughs> and uh, she takes that person and turns them into uh, a, a writing, essentially an artistic prompt, and that's that's an appropriation that's very difficult to forgive mm-hmm. and is um doesn't reflect well on Myrtle to say the least and I appreciate that Cassavetes is you know he doesn't put too fine a point on it he doesn't have a character tell Myrtle oh it's wrong that you're using this young woman for your art but it's not that uh subtle either like it, it's it's pretty clear that this isn't a great thing that she's doing mm-hmm. And when Nancy essentially manifests as a vengeful spirit who physically is able to harm Myrtle, or at least psychologically harm her and cause her to harm herself, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's really interesting. And again, that's kind of what was so surprising to me about this film is I wasn't expecting to see vengeful vengeful ghosts in a Cassavetes picture. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think that's the thing that always surprises me about this movie and that I tend to forget about every time I watch it until I turn it on again is that it is a ghost movie and it is a ghost story. And I I do love that it's, it's not really ambiguous that Nancy is or isn't there because I think the movie ends up making that very clear towards the end, but it feels almost like it's, it's the consequences of Myrtle's choice to use Nancy for her own ends that are coming back to haunt her. So it's almost like a double haunting sort of in a way. Yeah, it's I, I again like that's why I'm kind of I, I'm I'm glad that this is my first Cassavetes because it seems like it might be a little bit atypical and kind of be a nice accessible way to get into them. But I'm also a little bit concerned that when I watch my next Cassavetes picture, I'm not going to be prepared for what I what I'm going to find. I don't know how many uh, vengeful spirits are going to be in other Cassavetes movies. Uh, I think the ven- most of the other vengeful spirits in other Cassavetes movies are the characters themselves, 
sort of fighting with each other and with themselves. And uh, you may want to hold off on that for a little bit. I know that's probably not a very like rousing recommendation for Cassavetti's work, but um, I would say take a breather on this one, maybe take a little bit of an intermission and, and then maybe go in for some additional work just to see what a more typical Cassavetti's movie feels like. No, I, I like that you you brought it full circle with that intermission wordplay right here. We are just full of those subject matter appropriate analogies and metaphors on this week's episode. I know maybe that's a good place to to wrap up our discussion of opening night. Then, uh, listeners, if you've had a chance to watch along with us. Um, we'd love to get your thoughts on this film. What did you think of of its themes? What did you think of Gina Rowland's powerhouse performance, which I feel like we didn't even really talk enough about. Mm-hmm. Just it is a great performance. Um, and if this was your first Cassavetes, uh, what did you think of that? As we mentioned earlier, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. But uh, yeah, I guess that'll do it for this w- week's watch list segment. I'm looking forward to next week's watch list segment, Sarah, not because I have a great pairing. We are going to be talking about uh, Black Adam for a review of the new release, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a great pairing for, for that film. So I decided to just go full Halloween. So it's basically, since it's basically going to be our Halloween focused episode, we're going to be celebrating the 20th anniversary of Danny Boyle's 28 Days Later from 2002. So get ready for that. I am ready. I am lacing on my running shoes so that I can run with Killian Murphy through the streets of, I think it's London, That's probably reveals some of my ignorance mm-hmm. about this movie. Um, I'm looking forward to this one. I, I think that it's going to be a good time. I I, I think so too. And I, I, I don't know. There's I, I don't want to get into the discussion right here now, but there's a lot of questions that I'm going to have for you when we talk about that next week. But for now, that'll do it for this week. Seeing and Believing is brought to you, of course, by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.